This is going to be one of those lessons where we're going to be all over the place. But you know what? I'm going to be all over the place. I'm going to keep you parked in Matthew, all right? I'm going to make it easy on you today. I'll tell you what Mark and Luke and John tell us that Matthew doesn't. So let's just open up to Matthew 26. This is lesson 166 in your books, Guilt and Grace in the Garden. So once you're in Matthew 26, let's ask the Lord's blessing on our time together. Would you bow with me? Our Holy Father, we realize full well that those people who do not know your sons would see a man who, was, who claimed to be God hanging there shamefully on a cross. And to them, it is just absolutely utter foolishness to believe on such a one. And we know, too, that it has been a stumbling block to the majority of the Jewish people for some, some 2,000 years now. And we also realize, Father, that we are in the last days. So we pray that there would be a sweeping revival of your spirit to stir great numbers of lost and empty people to take a serious look at the Bible, your word, where they, they would learn that, from, that the scriptures from beginning to end communicate to us that the circumstances of Christ's passion were not only known to you, Father, because you planned them in eternity past, but you predicted them everywhere in the Old Testament scriptures so that they would be known when they took place. So we ask that eyes would be open to see that the Lord Jesus is God, and he repeatedly forewarned his disciples of every event that he would experience in his final hours. I ask that you would open understanding here in this group, in, in, among these ladies here this morning, and to those outside these walls that each of us can reach through our circle of, of, um, of witness, that the Lord, not only in Gethsemane, but throughout his entire ordeal of his sufferings and his trials and his death and his re resurrection, he was completely the one in control, orchestrating everything as he does yet today, even though we don't understand he is in control, orchestrating everything in our lives. We thank you for that truth, Father, that he was not a passive victim of circumstances. He was power under control. He was the Son of God yielding himself to your will, which was to allow himself to be taken and crucified for our sins. So, Father, it's in his name, and it's for his sake and for his glory that we now ask you to show us once again the majesty and the grace of your Son, our Savior. Amen. I hope that you all read your lesson in your book during this past week because, as I've told you many times, you get two lessons. You get that lesson and the lesson I teach here. And it's for your benefit. It's not for my benefit. It's for your, I don't want to spoon feed you. I want you to feed yourselves. And it is definitely for your benefit to read the lessons and to try to do the homework questions because then it is internalized in you. But I, I wonder how many of you were surprised to find that there were Old Testament prophecies that actually predicted the event we discussed last week when the Lord said, I am, and what happened to all those guys? Boom, they fell on their backs. Did you know that that had been predicted to happen in the Old Testament? Wasn't that amazing to find out? Even if they had fallen forward instead of backward, prophecy would not have been fulfilled. Because what did it say? It said in Psalm 27, 2, When the wicked, even mine enemies and my foes, 
came upon me to eat my flesh, they stumbled and fell. And as Psalm 40, 14 says, that they fell backward. They were driven backward and put to shame that wished me evil. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. And while studying the scripture for yourself, had it ever dawned on you that just as easily as the Lord could have gone somewhere else besides Gethsemane? You know, he knew Judas would eventually find him there, right? That he could have been halfway to Jericho or somewhere else. Not halfway, but he could have been well on his way somewhere else. But just as easily as he could have done that, you know what else he could have done? He could have left all those stunned men while they were still down there on the ground and simply walked away. Couldn't he? He could have. But that would have defeated his whole purpose for coming to earth, wouldn't it? Absolutely. So he voluntarily remained before them until they picked themselves up off the ground. And then what did he do? He's the king in control. He reminded them in their stupid state why they were there. You know, can't you picture them getting up and kind of shaking their heads and picking up their swords and their clubs and then what just happened? (laughs) And so he reminds them why they were there. It was kind of like an instant replay when he asked them again, whom seek ye? You see, he wanted them to say for themselves from their own lips that they were there not to take his disciples. Exactly. He's still, you know, he's the good shepherd. He's protecting his sheep. He had told his father back in the high priestly prayer, John 17, 12, that of those love gifts the father had given him, he had kept them and he would lose none. And so here he is protecting them. Now you would think, that when the Roman soldiers, temple guard, the Jewish religious leaders, and Judas himself all found themselves on their backs on the ground, that they would have wised up a little bit. You would think that would make them wise up and realize that they are trying to arrest someone who they should have been worshiping instead of trying to arrest. If we had been them, of course, we have the advantage of hindsight, but don't you think it would have been better for them if once they're on their backs, they realize, whoa, we should be worshiping him. They should go from their back position to their stomach position, right? Prostrate before him on their faces and worship him. However, as with people of all ages, they were so stubborn. And I speak primarily of the religious rulers here because they were the real conspirators. When you think about the Roman soldiers and the temple guard, those guys were really kind of apathetic toward the whole thing. They're just obeying orders, aren't they? They're just doing what their commanding officers told them to do. The real culprits here are the religious rulers, and we know how stubborn they were. They had had all the evidence in the world about who Jesus was, and they had all the scriptures to back it up. But they were so headstrong that no amount of evidence to the error of their ways changed their conduct. So when when he made it clear, when they made it clear that it was him and him alone that they had come to arrest, Uh, he then gave a command. And what was that command? Again, the king is in control, isn't he? He says, let these. You want me? Therefore, let these go their way. We see, again, Jesus' deity throughout this whole... You'd think this would be the one time that Jesus really looks weak. Here he's being arrested, betrayed and arrested. But we see nothing but if you have eyes to see his deity. I mean, he is the one who um, initiated this whole situation, isn't he? He's the one who went forth 
and then began the conversation with the arresters. He actually showed his power, his divine power, when he said his spoken name, I am, showed his power when they all fell backward. And in doing that, what was he doing? He was fulfilling Old Testament messianic prophecy. And then he's showing who he is in his protective power, protecting his disciples. And here he gives a command. He says, let these go their way. And when you find later on in our lesson today that they all, all the disciples forsook him and fled, it is really amazing that the authorities let them go. Because we're gonna, we probably won't get to this part, but today's lesson, there is a streaker. <laughs> there was a streaker in the garden. And it was probably young John Mark. Um, but maybe I'll explain that a little later. I'll see how our time goes. It probably won't go good because I forgot my watch again. Um, but uh, what was I saying? Lost my train. Streaker. Oh, that they let the disciples go because they try to grab this young guy, who was probably John Mark, um, and he slips out of his sheet. He had probably been awakened in the middle of the night when he heard all these people marching. You know, they came to the upper room, and it is sus suspected it was John Mark because his mother was a very wealthy uh, believer. She was part of the, er the early church. And she was wealthy, and they say that she probably owned the house in which the upper room was located, and her son was John Mark. So when Judas brought that whole big party, arresting party, to the upper room, it awoke, it awaked him. He heard it, you know, saw all the lanterns and torches. And, um, and so he slept just in his undergarments and grabbed the sheet. It says it was a linen sheet, which shows he was wealthy, because linen was expensive. Grabbed the sheet, wrapped it around him, and started following that party and was kind of watching from the sidelines and when he saw Jesus arrested and the others fled he tried to get away but some of the soldiers grabbed him this is all in Mark's account Mark is the only one who tells us this because Mark is the only one who knew you see because the other disciples had already fled Mark knew about it because it was him makes sense and he doesn't tell us it was him but this is what Bible commentaries say and he got away but the soldiers tried to grab him to take him he slipped away because he let him have his sheep sheet and he ran away naked, okay? That's why I called him the streaker in the garden. But anyway, if they were going after him, it is a miracle. It is amazing that they did not try to arrest the disciples as well. Also very amazing that they didn't touch them after Peter does what Peter does here in the garden. So that is another evidence, another miracle of uh, showing Christ. Deity and his command over this whole situation. He said, let him go, and they obeyed. They had to let him go. All right, let's look at the scripture, and for this I want to read, uh, to begin with, look at verses 48 to 51 of Matthew 26. And what I'm going to do as I read, I'm going to tell you other things that we learn from the other gospel writers, okay? So beginning with Mark 26, 48, this is right after it said in verse 47 that Judas had arrived, uh, I'm sorry, Matthew 26, 48, Right after it says Judas had arrived with the great multitude, then in verse 48 it says, Now he that betrayed him, which of course goes back to Judas, gave them, who's the them? That would be the Sanhedrin council when he connived with them. He gave them a sign saying, Whomsoever I shall kiss, that same is he. Hold him fast. It also says over in Mark's account, that he gave a second command to the soldiers arresting Jesus. He not only, this is Judas, Judas not only told them to hold him fast, but he said, 
lead him away safely. All right, we'll be discussing that later on in this lesson. Then verse 49, and forthwith he, that's Judas, came to Jesus and said, Hail, Master, and kissed him. And Jesus said unto him, Friend, wherefore art thou come? Luke twenty-two forty-eight tells us that he also, Jesus also said, Judas, betrayest thou the Son of Man with a kiss? Then came they and laid hands on him, on Jesus, and took him. Now, over in Luke's account, this is where the disciples, when they saw the soldiers actually take the Lord's hands and bind them behind his back, the disciples said, Lord, shall we smite with the sword? That's in Luke. Now, I look at verse 51. And behold, one of them, which were with Jesus, stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck a servant of the high priest and smote off his ear. Now, we are not told by Matthew, Mark, and Luke who that one was, but we are told by John. You don't need to turn there. I'm going to read you what it says in John's account. John 18.10 says, Then Simon Peter... Oh, that really doesn't surprise you, does it? <laughs> then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it, and smote the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear, in case you were curious. Which ear? The right ear. And the servant's name was Malchus. All right. Judas had probably been the one to offer the idea of the identifying kiss to the Jewish council. I don't know if he did that originally when he first went to meet with that council on Tuesday night or if he did it earlier this night of the arrest. Maybe somebody said, well, how will we know Jesus from any of the others? You know, it might be dark and maybe we'll grab the wrong one. Or they'll send Peter up front to pretend he's, you know, anything could happen. So Judas, it was probably his idea that he said that he would identify who Jesus was by a, by a kiss. Now, what's interesting is that when he made that agreement in verse 48, the Greek word used for kiss was the normal Greek word philian, for kiss. It's just, you know, a compression of the lips, a kiss. Okay? Kiss. You all know what a kiss is. Um, and that's the word he used. But what's interesting to learn is that when he actually went through with his horrible act of greeting and then kissing the Lord in the garden, in verse 49, there is a different Greek word used. It's actually a Greek verb used for kiss. It's katafelisin. And it refers to much more than a normal kiss. It refers to a fervent kiss. It's the word, same word, katafelisin, that was used with regard to that woman way back long ago who had probably been a former prostitute, and she had heard Jesus, and she had gotten saved, and she was just so overflowing with love and thankfulness to him that she went right into Simon the Pharisee's house and she washed the Lord's feet with her tears, and she dried his feet with her long hair, took her hair down, and it says that she kissed his feet. Katafelisin, same word, fervent kissing. It's the same word that was used of the prodigal's father. Remember the prodigal father? His son had gone off to the pigsty, and he, every day he's looking and waiting for him to return, and at long last he sees him, and he runs out to him, grabs him, and what does he do? 
kisses him. Same word, katafelisin. You would think, wouldn't you, that Judas would have been embarrassed over this betrayal. Embarrassed before the Lord and also before the other men. I mean, after all, they had spent some three years together. And also, Jesus has already identified himself, hasn't he? Twice. Who do you seek? Jesus of Nazareth? I am. He's already identified himself. So Judas could have simply said, yes, that's him. He could have just confirmed, yes, that's him. Or if he was so intent on going through with his original agreement about the kiss, he at least could have shown some degree of restraint and just pecked the Lord on the cheek. You know, that was a common greeting. It still is in many parts of the, of the Middle East today where you see men go, you know, on both sides and just kind of kiss the cheek. He could have done something lightly like that. Or it was also a common uh, show of respect for a disciple to kiss his master rabbi's his teacher's hand. So he could have just taken the Lord's hand and just lightly kissed it like that. But that's not what he did at all. He demonstrated neither embarrassment nor restraint or fear. After all he had seen the Lord had the power to do, I mean, just a few minutes ago, he himself was on his back on the dirt. Don't you think he might have shown a little fear or had a little fear of the Lord? But, but what does he do? Instead of showing embarrassment, restraint, or any degree of fear, he brazenly approached the Lord and said, Hail, Master, and kissed him ostentatiously, very showy, you know, um, very hypocritically, very dramatically, way over the top, pretentiously. This is just amazing. It's just so evil what he did. And also, the word hail, when he said, hail master, that was a common greeting back in those days among the Jewish people, like shalom, which means peace. They'd see each other and they'd say hail, because the Hebrew word is actually rejoice. That would be a nice greeting for us. Instead of always saying, you know, how are you? Say rejoice. That's good, isn't it? Or peace. Those are good greetings. And um, it was actually the word that Jesus himself used when he suddenly appeared before his disciples in the upper room in his resurrected body. Oh, and there it was a very appropriate greeting, wasn't it? I mean, they're sad and they're depressed and they're crying. What are we going to do now? And all of a sudden he walks through the wall and there he is. And what does he say? Rejoice. And think about it. Judas could have heard that greeting from the resurrected Lord himself if he had not gone his own way and defected here. But it was truly evil for him to greet Jesus with the word rejoice when both he and the Lord knew that this was the betrayal, a betrayal of the worst kind. Isn't that hypocritical? Rejoice, and here I've got 700 guys to, ar- to arrest you. So in light of the circumstances, both the greeting rejoice and the title of respect master along with this very showy, fervent, over-the-top, pretentious kiss, all of it was nothing short of just plain devilish. Well, we also learn that Judas gave orders to the men who arrested him. In Matthew here, it says, hold him fast. Mark says, uh, lead him away safely. And I, I know that some of us, 
we look at that word safely in the English, it, it kind of threw me off last week when Betty asked me about it. Because um, it looks like maybe his concern is that Jesus be taken away safely, right? Doesn't it? But that's not his concern at all. His concern was not about the safety of the Lord, as it initially might seem. The word safely, I looked it up in the Greek, and it um, actually means confidence. You know, if Judas had wanted Jesus to be safe throughout all of this, why would he have gone (laughs) to those who wanted to kill him and betrayed him to them and then arrived with some 600 armed soldiers? You know, his concern was not for the Lord's safety. He's speaking of confidence. He wanted those who bound Jesus to hold on to him and to do so with confidence, not fearing him. And to do so in a way that would prevent the other men, the other disciples, trying to make an attempt to rescue him. Judas was perhaps a little bit fearful here that some of the disciples would not surrender their master without a fight. Remember, he has spent some time with these guys 24-7 for the past three and a half years. Uh, And he had just heard Peter say earlier that same night that he would stick with the master no matter what. Even if he had to die with him, he would stick with him. And Peter, I mean, you never quite knew what Peter would do. So I'm sure it doesn't look like Judas was that afraid of Jesus, but he might have been a little worried about Peter, and rightfully so. I am amazed that Peter didn't hack at Judas, aren't you? I think Judas must have been a little bit cowardly and must have been hiding behind Malchus. Because knowing Peter, he would have gone for Judas instead of the high priest's servant. Anyway, and then there were also a couple sons of thunder, weren't there, in that group? James and John, remember what those two guys wanted to do? (laughs) They want to make crispy critters out of everybody in the Samaritan village. You know, just call down fire. Can you imagine old people, women, children, crispify the whole town, Lord? Why don't you do it? Kind of hot-headed, right? And then there was a former zealot by the name of Simon. Had formerly gone around, and I don't know if he ever did actually kill anybody, but that's what the zealots did. They would slip up on Roman soldiers and slit their necks. And there was a, a bunch of rough, tough Galileans. There was Matthew, a former tax collector. They were all Galileans. Galileans were known for being, you know, kind of buff. It's interesting that... Um, The only one who wasn't from Galilee was Judas. He was the only one who was from the south. (laughs) He was a Judean. So we can almost be sure that Judas had not planned on leaving Gethsemane without seeing some kind of a struggle from his fellow, former fellow disciples. Either that or Jesus might. I don't think he was afraid of Jesus doing any harm, but Jesus might mysteriously slip from their presence the way Judas had seen him do on other occasions when he was just minutes away from being put to death. So Judas was concerned about that. So he says, hold him fast. He's a tricky one. And he's got some fiery friends. So let's be sure that we lead him away from here safely. Okay, that's what he's saying. And these words do indicate a sense of apprehension on the part of of, uh, Judas. Judas Iscariot. I think we would all agree, the most wasted life in all human history because of the fact that his opportunities were so great. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, here 
he, he, was, he had the most golden opportunity that any man could ever have to be one of the original apostles, one of the 12 with Jesus Christ. You know, have his name written on the foundations of, of the heavenly city and, um, and uh, to be part of the foundation of the church. You know, if he hadn't defected and betrayed the Lord, there might be a New Testament book in our Bibles that had the title Judas, right? Could be. What an opportunity. But he wasted it. The saddest, most tragic life in all of human history. The son of perdition he truly was. What did that mean? Son of waste. The son of destruction. It has been noted that Judas defiled everything he came into contact with other than the Lord, which, who can't be defiled, but he defiled his name. You know, Judas is a wonderful name. It comes, it's like this, the nickname for Judah, the tribe of Judah. What does the name Judas mean in Hebrew? Praise. That's a wonderful name. But how many men and boys do you know who have the name Judas? Does anybody know a Judas? I had this... Their dog? Must have been a mean critter. <laughs> But, you know, he defiled, he defiled that name, didn't he? It's, it's, it's even worse than naming your daughter Jezebel. Does anybody know a Jezebel? I hope not. It's like, you know, he put, he put a curse on that wonderful name. It's, it's, it's taboo to name anyone Judas. Also, he defiled the honorable list of the original apostles. Because at the end of that beautiful roll call of great names, we always find, it says, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed the Lord. He also defiled one of the most precious moments in the Lord's life. We talked about this last week. When uh, Mary of Bethany was worshiping him by pouring out on him her expensive, fragrant, spikenard perfume. And what did Judas do? He sprayed his toxic poison on that otherwise beautiful moment in the Lord's life. And as treasurer of the group, he also defiled the love gifts that had been given to meet the needs of the Lord and his men by the Jewish people because he was constantly dipping his hand into that money to satisfy his own selfish purposes. So he defiled the love gifts. And now we see that he defiled this lovely as you see here, you know, this uh, little serene scene in Gethsemane where the Lord had just won the victory. He really won his victory in Gethsemane more than at Golgotha. And he, he just defiled this whole beautiful place of Gethsemane by turning it into the place of the greatest betrayal and the most wicked and unjustified arrest in all of history. And then, too, he just managed to defile the beauty of a kiss didn't he? The beauty of a kiss by using it as his wicked weapon with which to betray the Savior of the world. Judas is the only individual in the scripture to this point of whom it clearly says that Satan entered into him. Now many of us do say that in the end times there will be another one who is possessed by Satan himself and that will be the Antichrist, but to this point, Satan's, uh, Judas is the only one, and that's in John thirteen twenty seven. You know, Satan himself uh, must have been infuriated when he f- suddenly found himself on the dirt, on his back, before the feet 
of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And therefore, when his dupe, the one who he was possessing, the human Judas, when he got up off of his back, don't you know it was Satan inside of him that launched him forward to, to commit his loathsome deed of kissing, uh, you know, using his, his hypocritical kiss to betray the Savior. That was Satan in him doing that and, and doing it in such a horrible, hypocritical, devilish way with that, that uh, hail, rejoice, and that, and that ostentatious kiss. But if you had told Judas that he was actually possessed by Satan, what do you think his reaction would have been at this time? I mean, he had absolutely no awareness of that. He would have laughed that person to scorn at such a preposterous statement that I'm possessed by Satan? Yeah, right. Do you think people possessed by demons today, and I believe that there are more and more people today being possessed... We're not labeling them correctly. But you look into some of the eyes of some of these anarchists that's going on in a lot of cities today. You look into their faces and into their eyes, and you're going to see demons looking back at you. They have opened themselves up to demonic possession with all of their drugs and all of their wicked ways. And we might call it other things, mentally disturbed or whatever. But it's demonic possession. But people laugh at that. You know, fallen human nature, fallen nature is bad enough. But fallen human nature influenced by the demonic realm, literally capable of doing anything. Anything. You can't reason with them. The best thing you have is to just, if somebody like that is looking at you or trying to attack you or you're ever in a situation like that, you say, greater is he who is in me, Jesus Christ, than he who is in you. Get thee behind me, Satan. Don't try to reason. Don't talk, try to fight such a one. And I'm saying this because it's getting worse, ladies. This is all around us. We live in dangerous, perilous times. But think of this. Even a normal demon, whatever a normal demon is, but even a normal demon may have been intimidated by the Son of God to do anything directly to him. Think of the times when Jesus exercised demons out of people, like when there was a demoniac in a synagogue one time, and that demon was afraid of Jesus and said, you know, please, have you come early to cast me into the pit? He knew who he was. He called him the Holy One of God. And remember that rude, crude dude in the nude? We're talking a lot about nudity today. <laughs> the demoniac of Gadara and the demons in him were petrified when Jesus came into the scene. and begged to, to be cast into the pigs instead of into the pit. So a normal demon would have been intimidated inside of Judas to do this, to betray the Son of God, the Holy One of God, because they all knew who he was. They had been with him before they joined Satan in his fall. So who did it take to do this? Satan himself. Satan himself. That's why Satan possessed Judas. This was serious business here. You know, I'm sure many of us know this, unfortunately, that the pain of betrayal is severe. To be betrayed by 
maybe a mother, a father, a brother, a sister, a son, a daughter, perhaps from a one-time close friend, a husband. A lot of us in this room know what it feels like to be betrayed. Betrayal, pain, leaves deep scars, doesn't it? Had you ever thought of the fact that Jesus suffered the scar of betrayal before he ever suffered the scars of his scourging and the scars of those nail prints at the time of his crucifixion? Emotional pain goes deeper, a lot deeper, and it lasts a lot longer than physical pain. Usually we don't ever get over it. And so remember that when you are hurting because you have been betrayed, that we do have a God who understands. He's been there. He can empathize with the feelings of our infirmities. One time a long time ago, I made a really stupid statement. It wasn't the first and it wasn't the last. <laughs> but I did say, you know, one thing Jesus could never understand is what it like, it's like to be married. And almost as soon as I said that, I thought, whoa, was that dumb? He's got the church as his bride. Talk about problems. <laughs> and who was God married to in the Old Testament? Israel, who was always going a-whoring. Oh, yeah, he knows what it feels like to be married and to be betrayed even in marriage. So he's been there. Think about this. Jesus was doubly betrayed. He was doubly betrayed. Betty Treadwell, hey, good to see you. Think about, have you ever have realized that he was doubly betrayed? He was originally betrayed by Lucifer, the special anointed covering cherub angel. You can read about him in Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14, who was full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. He once was God's friend. He once was Christ's friend friend. Christ created him, but he was the covering angel, the most beautiful angel Christ had ever created. What does it mean to be the covering angel? He actually abode over the throne of God. So you know they were close, right? They were close at one time. And yet, he became so proud of his shining beauty that his pride corrupted his wisdom. Can pride do that? Oh, yes. Pride can corrupt wisdom. And he therefore rebelled against his own creator, the one he was there protecting. Not that God needs protection, protecting, but he was the covering angel. And he came to believe that he could be as God and that he could replace God. That was the Lord Jesus' original betrayal, wasn't it? Do you think that didn't hurt his heart? And that Lucifer took with him one-third of the holy angels? Of course that had to hurt his heart. And now the original betrayer was using a member of the human race who had also gotten very close to the Lord, one of his own disciples. Think about Judas, okay? Judas was the only Judean. I just told you that. All the rest of the disciples were from Galilee. That means they were sort of less sophisticated. And probably less educated. The Judeans were more educated. They were more sophisticated. They were more snobby. You might, you know, however you want to word it. 
Um, and and he, he probably held himself up a little higher than the others as well. He also was the treasurer of the group. Why wasn't Matthew the treasurer? He was good at figures. He had been a tax collector. But they made Judas the treasurer, which shows us he was smart. He was good with numbers. And he was very trusted. He had to have been trusted. None of them had a clue. Judas was probably the last one that they would have suspected. And where was Judas sitting at the night of the Passover supper? On the Lord's left, which was the seat of honor. Remember, we discussed that. That's why he received the sop first. For all we know, Judas might have been the best looking of the disciples. Just like Lucifer. He had gotten close to the Lord. And the Lord was betrayed again. Doubly betrayed. So does he know what that feels like, that pain? Yes, he sure does. And yet, as great as his own sorrow and his own pain must have been, it was small when compared to the sorrow that the Lord must have had for Judas himself. What did we learn last week? That Jesus knew all things. Jesus, knowing all things, knew that because of his greed and because of his prideful self-will, Judas had traded what could have been for him the abundant life. Who could have a more abundant life than to have been one of the apostles, the original twelve? He traded that abundant life and eternity with him in, in bliss, the bliss of heaven for what? What did he trade that for? For torment and anguish in eternal hell. Jesus also knew that Judas was very soon to go there because Jesus knew that before the next 24 hours passed, what would Judas do? Go out and commit suicide. Take his own life. So he was sad for Judas more than he was even sad for himself. That's the heart of our Lord. And so you can almost hear his sadness when he asks Judas. He's looking in his eyes and he says to him these words. It's amazing. The grace. That's why I call this the guilt and the grace in the garden. Guilt and grace in the garden. We see guilt of everybody, but we see the grace of the Lord shining even brighter than all the guilt. He says to Judas, friend. Friend? Wherefore art thou come? Was he yet, do you think, endeavoring to wake up the conscience of Judas as to his wicked reason for leading all of the Lord's enemies to the garden? Do you think he was still trying to get Judas to repent even at this late stage in the game? Do you? I do. I do. And if Judas had repented Do you think the Lord would have delivered him of Satan and saved his eternal soul? I think so too, but we'll never find out. Because the question did not embarrass or restrain Judas whatsoever. No indication here of any sense of guilt. Now later on, of course, there's some remorse, but no sense of repentance. He was so involved in his own pretentious display of affection that even the Lord's other sobering question, which was, Judas, betrayest thou the Son of Man? That's a messianic title. You're betraying the Messiah? The one you've waited for so long? With this hypocritical kiss of yours? Even that did not seem to penetrate his calloused heart. 
No one has been guilty of a more of a worse sin than Judas Iscariot. He betrayed the Messiah, the promised seed of the woman, all the way back to Genesis 3:15. And yet against the darkness of his sins, the Lord shined all the more brightly, demonstrating in still one more way that he was no ordinary man. Jesus Christ was not just a good man. He was way above any ordinary man. What would an ordinary man have done in similar situation here? What would an ordinary man? Would he have looked Judas in the face and said, friend? No, I can imagine what an ordinary man was. You scoundrel. You wicked servant. Or far worse, right? Far worse. But the Lord ever showing unnatural grace addressed Judas as friend. And in doing so, guess what? In doing that, he's reminding everyone there who knew their Old Testament scriptures, and who would that be? The main culprits, the religious rulers, knew their Old Testament scriptures. He was reminding them that there, um, of, of another betrayal committed against King David by one of his one-time close friends named Ahithophel, right? Under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, David wrote these words, and this is in Psalm 41.9. And they were um, not only about his own situation. You know, David was a type of Christ. So he's writing not only about his pain of betrayal by his one-time friend Ahithophel, but he's also writing predictively of the coming Messiah when he says, Yea, mine own familiar what? Friend. Friend. Jesus purposely used the word friend in the garden. To remind them of this prophecy of David. Yea, mine own familiar friend in whom I trusted, which did eat of my bread, hath lifted up his heel against me. Interesting, isn't it? That uh, David mentioned that his friend would lift up his heel against him. Which, by the way, is comparable to our expression of kicking someone when they're down. That's what he did. He kicked Judas's kiss was really... A betrayal kick. When he went up hissing and kissing, Satan looking out of his eyes, he was kicking the Lord with that kiss. Kicking him when he was down. Of course, Jesus was never down. Actually, Satan had just been down, right? But in light of the fact that we know Judas was possessed by Satan and God had predicted way back in Genesis 3.15 that Satan would bruise the heel of the woman's seed, we see a connection here, don't we? The satanic betrayal in the Gethsemane Garden was connected to the satanically motivated fall of man in the Edenic Garden. It's just all so clear for those who have eyes to see and ears to hear. Well, as a significant footnote, I do need to add this because you might say, well, for the first time he had just called his faithful disciples friends back in John 15, 14. We got so excited about us being the friends of Jesus that he would call us friends. And here he's calling Satan-possessed betrayer, Judas, his friend. Well, let me tell you, he did use a different word, a different Greek word for friend. He didn't use the same word friend as when he was speaking to his faithful disciples. He used the same word that was used back in the parable of the wedding banquet for the king's son. You all remember that parable? I don't know if you do or not, but it was back in Matthew 22. Jesus used the same word for friend that was used by the king in that parable. Remember, the king was throwing a wedding banquet for his son. And somebody showed up 
not dressed in the right wedding attire. And um, the gracious king gave that uninvited guest, or unproperly attired guest, an opportunity to explain his neglect. You know, he was not covered in the right garment. He was not covered in the righteousness of the Son, the Christ, was he? That's what the parable was all about. And so the king asked the man this, friend, same word that Jesus uses in the Garden of Judas, friend, how camest thou in hither not having a wedding garment? Doesn't that sound a lot like the Lord's question to Judas when he said, friend, wherefore art thou come? Same word for friend in both cases. The king of the parable, you see, was reaching out to that uninvited guest, calling him friend, in order to give him a chance to repent and to throw himself on the king's mercy. But do you know what that intruder did? He stood there speechless. Do you know what Judas does when Jesus asks him those two questions? Friend, Judas, you betray the son of man. He stands there speechless, exactly the same. The unprepared guest did not apologize. He did not repent. He did not beg for forgiveness. And the horrible consequence of having done things his way, you know, I'm not going to be covered with Christ's righteousness. I'm going to work my own way into the the wedding banquet for the king's son. I'm going to do it my way. And the consequence of that, instead of doing it the king's provided way, do you remember when we studied that parable that we learned that the king freely provided every wedding guest with the wedding attire. They didn't have to pay for their beautiful robes to wear to that wedding. He gave them to them freely. But the consequence for that intruder and the consequence for Judas is that, well, let's look at the parable. First of all, they took that uninvited wedding guest, grabbed him and took him, bound him hand and foot, and cast him into outer darkness. And that's really interesting in view of the fact that right after this conversation between Jesus Jesus and Judas in the garden, who is the one who is bound and taken away? Jesus. (laughs) Things aren't always as they appear, are they? They're not always as they appear. Because the truth of the situation is that Judas was the one who um, was really bound now eternally in the chains of his sin and very soon would be cast into outer darkness. The king, you see, had just removed the imposter from his presence forever. So it's not always what it appears to be in this world. Well, so far there seems to have been kind of a slow start to the arrest of Jesus. You can read this really fast, but there's a whole lot going on, right? Uh, This may be because the arresting party was coming slowly out of their stunned stupor of having been mysteriously dropped backward to the ground. And the disciples are probably still coming out of their sleeping stupor. However, they woke up in a hurry when they saw some of the soldiers come forth and lay their hands on Jesus to take him away. So that's why over in Luke, they asked him the question, Lord, shall we smile? But, as you would know, there was one disciple who didn't wait for the Lord to answer that question. (laughs) And even if we weren't told by John, I think we would all properly guess 
that it was Simon Peter. Peter was one of two disciples who had a little sword, not a big sword like the Roman soldiers would be carrying, but a little short dagger sword, such as you use to prepare Passover lambs. Who were the two disciples who had been sent the previous day to prepare the lamb for the Passover supper? Peter and John. So Peter had one of the two swords that they had. All right? Now remember, Peter had boasted earlier that night in John 13 that he would lay down his life for the Lord. And he had also boasted that all, all, although all the rest of the disciples would scatter, he wouldn't, right? Not me, not big burly Peter. I won't scatter from you, Lord. And perhaps now, you see, he was attempting to show forth the truth of his boasts and to also compensate for that awful prediction that Jesus had made that before the next cock would crow, Peter would deny him three times. Now, he's going to show him, I would never deny you, Lord, and out comes his dagger. But seriously, you know, I don't think that Peter thought through any of this. I think that he just acted on his natural, impetuous impulse, don't you? Out came the sword. He took out that um, small dagger, and he hacked off the right ear of the high priest's servant. Who was the high priest? Caiaphas, the big mucky muck, you know, the leader of the Sanhedrin. And he had his own private, trusted servant. Caiaphas wasn't out in front, was he? Another coward. He pushed his servant in front, and Peter hacked off the guy's right ear. And even though this account is found in all four of the Gospels, only John tells us the name of this sword-swinging disciple, and it was Peter. Also, John is the only one who gives us the name of Caiaphas' servant, which is Malchus. Now, why do you suppose that John alone gives us these two names, Peter and Malchus? Why don't Matthew, Mark, and Luke give us their names? They just say there was one and high priest servant. That's it. Well, it is likely because by the time John was inspired to write his account, which was somewhere between 85 and 95 A.D., okay, 85 and 95 A.D., he wrote his gospel. By that time, Peter was dead. And you see, he would no longer be in trouble uh, with either the Romans for resisting Roman arrest or with the Jews for having assaulted the high priest's servant. In fact, since John wrote that late, Jerusalem wasn't even there. When was Jerusalem destroyed? 70 AD. So there was no Jerusalem, there was no Sanhedrin council, there was no high priest anymore. So Peter wouldn't have been in trouble. So it would make no difference for John's readers to know the names of those who had been involved in the Gethsemane arrest scene. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, however, when they wrote their gospel accounts, they were still protecting Peter. Now, why do you think that none of them, that makes sense, doesn't it? But why do you think none of them, Matthew, Mark, or Luke, included the name of the high priest servant, Malchus? Why didn't they include his name? Only John does. Well, it could be for one of three reasons. Perhaps Matthew, Mark, and Luke did not know the man's name, and only John came to know the man's name was Malchus later on. That's one possibility. Perhaps second possibility, they feared that Malchus knew Peter's name and that he would tell people Peter's name when people read the letters of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And they said, oh, look what happened. Um, and this guy's named Malchus. And they run to Malchus and say, which disciple was it that tried that cut off your right ear? 
And he said he would say it was Peter, and Peter would be in trouble, you see? That's the second option, but I really like the third option. I believe that Malchus became a Christian, and that Matthew, Mark, and Luke. I was thinking, if you had been Malchus, all right, you're a servant to begin with, you know, you're really a slave, and you go to the garden only because you have to, and you see this amazing man come forward, and he's going to be arrested, but he initiates everything, and he's totally composed, and he's totally in control. And he says this name, I am, and everybody, 700 armed guys go falling on their backs. And he's one of them. And he gets up, and then a few minutes later, his ear is missing. <laughs> and, and, and this man, this fantastic man, picks it up off the ground and puts it back on his head. I don't know what it would take to get saved if that wouldn't do it, do you? <laughs> I believe that they were protecting Malchus because he became a Christian and Malchus was known in the Christian community. They all knew Malchus. He was maybe on fire for the Lord. He went around giving his testimony. I lost my ear. Jesus put it back. I mean, that makes the best sense to me. Well, although we might admire Peter's courage here, if you do, if you condone his courage here, uh, you're admiring his physical boldness and you're on the wrong track because it quickly evaporated when he discovered that the Lord was not going to follow his lead and smite everyone. Who was trying to take control over the king? Peter. Okay, follow me, Lord. Let's start hacking off ears. <laughs> but in just a few more verses, Peter disappears into the darkness with all the rest of the disciples. Remember, there is the possibility that t Peter was temporarily emboldened to pull out his dagger because he had just witnessed the backward fall of the entire arresting multitude by just the power of the Lord's words. Perhaps Peter thought that Jesus would use another mighty word, like die, <laughs> or some mighty work. Peter had seen plenty of mighty works, hadn't he? I mean, he had even walked on water himself because of the Lord. And so he, he probably assumed that the Lord would do something to stop the soldiers from attacking back. Very likely, the, the last thing that Peter ever anticipated in all of this is that he would be the one who was rebuked and reprimanded. But shouldn't he have been used to that by now? <laughs> and... The last thing I'm sure he ever expected was that Jesus would gently and graciously put the ear back on the man's head. Peter may have thought that the critical time of his testing had arrived and he had proven himself with his sword. I hope he was a better fisherman than he was a fighter because I don't really think he was going for the guy's ear. Think about it. What good would that do? 700 armed soldiers and he hacks off an ear. Oh, I'm sure everybody would just be trembling, you know. <laughs> I think he was going for the guy's head, right? <laughs> to crush his head, slit his throat or whatever. And he missed. He wasn't a very good fighter. But uh, um, he, he probably thought that, that this was his test and he had proven himself. Little did he know that his, his real test would come later. And it would come not by way of Caiaphas's male, most trusted servant. His real test would come by way of a young teenage servant girl. 
And she would say, you know, aren't you one of Jesus' followers? And he flunked the test, didn't he? Big time. You see, so often we think that our tests are are the big come in the big things, don't we? We think they come in the big things, and 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 we wonder if we're going to have the determination and the courage to act in some bold and striking manner. But the reality is that most of the critical tests in our lives come in the little things, the unexpected things, in those quiet moments when we maybe need to speak up for Jesus like Peter should have done at that fire and what do we do? We don't. As with most everything that Peter did before Pentecost his action was a demonstration of zeal without knowledge. Right? Zeal. He had the zeal. He had the love too but he didn't have the knowledge. You see by this time Peter should well have known that Jesus was going to be arrested and even killed because Jesus has been telling this him this, all the disciples this, ever since the feeding of the 4,000. Do you know that? Way back. You know, he fed 5,000, then they were Jewish people, and then later on he, he fed 4,000. Of course, there were more because there were men and women included with the men, I mean, children and women included. But from that time, the scripture tells us, from the time of the feeding of the 4,000, in Matthew 16, it says, from that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things at the, of the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. But do you know what Peter said the first time the Lord told him that, which was the first of many? What did Peter say when he first heard that? He said, far be it from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. And then he had to hear the harshest words Jesus ever spoke. When Jesus said, get thee behind me, Satan. Thou art an offense to me. For thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. Guess what? This is now a year and a half later, and Peter is still not savoring the things that be of God. He is still savoring the things of men. Things like weapons of warfare. And like killing and blood, Peter was still fighting the wrong enemy in the wrong way. He was fighting Malchus with the sword when he should have been fighting Satan with prayer, right? And he not only fought the wrong enemy with the wrong weapon, but he had the wrong motives. His motive here is anger, hatred, and preventing Christ from going to the cross. Peter's self-confident and hasty energy of the flesh put both himself and the other disciples and even the Lord himself in great danger. Didn't his action put all of them in danger? Serious danger? What if the Lord had died in Gethsemane? All his prophecies would not have been fulfilled. He had to be lifted up as Moses lifted up the serpent and as he kept saying. So the Lord, you see, had to intervene quickly in order to prevent a disastrous bloodbath there in Gethsemane. So the king, again, took instant control before anyone else could do anything. And that has to be fast. Because who is he dealing with? Battle-tested Roman soldiers with long swords. 600 of them, a cohort. And do you think those guys knew how to draw their sword fast? So who's the quickest draw there ever was? Jesus had to beat them to the punch. 
And he drew out the sword of his word. And it's wonderful. And I'm probably late. Am I out of time? Okay. Let's look quickly at his reprimand of Peter. If you have to go, go. Several have had to go, but I want to try to finish this. His reprimand of Peter and his repair work of Malchus. So let's look at verses 52 to 54. Then said Jesus, here he pulls out his sword and says, Put up again thy sword into his place, for all they that take the sword shall perish with the sword. Thinkest thou that I cannot now pray to my father, and he shall presently give me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then shall the scripture be fulfilled that thus it must be? Luke twenty two fifty one says, Then Luke is the only one who tells us, that after he said that reprimand to Peter, he touched Malchus's ear and healed him. What did the Lord teach Peter here through his quick and sharp words? He taught him, number one, that the use of the sword is dangerous. Those who use the sword will perish. What does he say? This, uh, they that take the sword shall perish with the sword. I'm going to let you read more about that in your notes, but he's teaching him it's dangerous to seek personal vengeance, or even to try to defend Christ and his cause with, with arms. That is not what we're called to do. Our weapons of warfare are what? The sword of the Spirit, the, the word of God. Second, he taught Peter that the use of his sword was unnecessary. If Jesus had wanted to, how many angels could he call down from heaven? Twelve legions. That would be one legion for him and each of the eleven disciples. Do you know how many in a legion? You should after last week's lesson. Six thousands. What's 12 times 6,000? 72,000 angels. If he had wanted to, Father would have sent him instantly. Not just one as in the picture. 72,000. Do you know on one night alone, it took just one angel to slay 185,000 Assyrians under the time of King Hezekiah? If you multiply 72,000 angels and each one could slay in one night 185,000 people, that would be 14 billion. We did that yesterday in Terry's calculator. 14 billion people. One angel slew all the firstborns in Egypt in just one night. Angels are powerful. He, he had that at his... I mean, the Lord didn't even need to call angels. He could have just said die and all the, they would all die. So the use of the sword was dangerous. It was unnecessary. But the most important thing he's telling Peter here is that the use of his sword was unscriptural. He said to him, but how then shall the scriptures be fulfilled that thus it must be? It was not the time to resist enemies, Peter. If you'd been awake, you would have known it was time to go to the cross. It was his hour. Over in um, John, it says that he also said to Peter here... The cup which my father hath given me, shall I not drink it? If Peter hadn't been snoozing, he would have known that the Lord said, Let this cup pass from me, nevertheless not my will, but thy will be done. If the Lord had called on angels to assist him, the scripture wouldn't have been fulfilled, would it? If he slew everyone with just the power of his own mouth, um... All, his, all the scripture wouldn't have been fulfilled and his own predictions wouldn't have been fulfilled. For Peter to oppose the Lord's arrest was to oppose the fulfillment of God's plan for mankind's redemption. You see, because Peter boasted too quickly, because he prayed too infrequently, because he slept too heartily, and because he acted too impetuously, 
Jesus had to reprimand him to put down his sword and try to understand that everything was going right on schedule. Everything is going just in accordance with God's plan and purpose. And then in a sovereign act of grace, not only for Malchus, but for Peter and for the other disciples. Because if Jesus hadn't healed Malchus, what do you think would have happened? War. And it wouldn't have taken long for 700 to beat 11, would it? So, sovereign act of grace, he, he performs his last miracle, other than the resurrection. This is his last miracle. And only Luke tells us about this healing miracle. Luke alone was the only one, he was the only one to mention the Lord's bloody sweat in the garden. Remember? And Luke alone is the only one who tells us of the Lord's healing of Malchus's ear. And this is, I want you to, do you, do you know why it was only Luke? Luke is the only one that tells us about the blood and the sweat and Malchus' healing. It's because, now listen, this is really profound and this is really deep. It's because Luke, being a physician, was naturally much more concerned about blood, sweat, and ears. I'm so glad you got that than the other gospel right? Do we not see that through this entire event in Gethsemane that it was the Lord Jesus who's orchestrating everything? I hope that's the one thing you go away with is that he was in control about everything. Uh, he, he initiated the conversation. He says his name. Everybody falls forward. He, uh, he, he's the one who gives orders and everybody obeys, including Satan. <laughs> he, um, he rebukes Judas. He corrects Peter's blunder. He heals Malchus and he shames his arresters. I don't have time to get into that, but when you go home, read your notes. He tells them, you come out here with swords and clubs as, to arrest me as though I'm a thief. He's shaming them. Why? You know, I was out with you all week long in the temple open publicly. If what you're doing is just and right, why didn't you arrest me there in public? You come out at night like I'm a thief, armed. Have I ever harmed anybody in my ministry? I'm, I'm not an insurrectionist. Had he ever harmed anybody? Even when he cleansed the temple twice, he never hurt anybody. Not one person. The only person who's ever been harmed because of his ministry, because of blundering Peter, he had just healed. So he's putting the, the, the religious rulers to shame here and telling them essentially the reason you're here armed to the hilt and coming in the darkness of night is because you're wicked, you're doing a wicked deed, you know, darkness, evil loves darkness, and you're a bunch of cowards. So he's even in control, you know, over that. And then it tells us the sad thing, all the disciples forsook him and fled when they finally saw he is going to be arrested, he is going to be taken away, and they lost, their, their faith faltered, didn't it? It faltered. And, uh, and they fled from him. But even that, you know what? Even that was for, uh, fulfilling prophecy, wasn't it? Smite the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. Plus the Lord had told his men earlier that night that they would indeed, they would indeed scatter from him. You would think that hearing and seeing everything that had happened in that garden would have comforted the disciples, would have emboldened the disciples, right? But they weren't comforted. And why was that? Why was that? I'll tell you why. It's because their ears weren't yet healed. Their ears weren't yet healed. 
Jesus was speaking, but they still were not hearing him. They were going by sight. And all they could see was their master, the one they had put everything into the last three and a half years, being bound and carried off, taken away. And they were absolutely scared to death when they fled. But they changed, didn't they? They changed, and we know they changed. Don't have time to tell you about the streaker, but I sort of already did. All right, I'm sorry I kept you over time. Let's pray. Father, thank you that Jesus Christ is and always has been in control. He has never or ever will be the victim of circumstances. We thank you for that, that the king is still on his throne. And the word of God, without a shred of evidence to the contrary, repeatedly confirms to those with healed ears that Jesus Christ is God himself. I think how very appropriate it is, Lord, that our, that our, our Savior's last miracle was to heal an ear. And how I thank you that he healed my ears so that I truly heard the truth of your word. Because we know that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. We love you and pray in Jesus' name.